you will turn with me to the book of John. John chapter 16 will be where we are today. Let me silence that. Oh, yeah, sorry. Children up to age of three, we have an extended session prepared for them. If you'd like, you can take advantage of that at this time. John chapter 16. We are in verses 16 through 24. Last month I preached on Matthew 15, 16 through 22, so kind of followed a little similar here. This is the word of the Lord. It says this, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will see you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will return into joy, will turn into joy. Excuse me. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of, or you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. That is the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let us pray. Dearly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for your word. It brings life, it revives the soul, it is pure, it is true, it is righteous, it is wonderful, it is everything to us. God, we just pray in this time that your word goes forth and it does not return to you void, that your people hear your voice and they follow. May these things ring true and um, may I stay out of the way. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and give you thanks. Amen. All right, so today we find ourselves in the passage that we read in the latter part of what is known as the Upper Room Discourse. Now, there's a couple of ways people have understood this, whether it be chapters 13 through 16 uh, from the Last Supper until this point, or chapters 14 through 17, doesn't matter which camp you find yourselves in. Uh, Today we are in chapter 16, so I kind of wanted to recap 13, 14, and 15 as we get into today to try to set the tone and the background for where we are today. And so in chapter 13, Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. He foretells of his betrayal, and then he tells about Peter's denial. In chapter 14, we get John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Right? This speaks of the exclusivity of salvation that is found in Christ. But then he goes on and talks about the promised Holy Spirit who would come. By chapter 15, they are reminded of their security in Christ, that he is the vine and they are the branches. Right? He is the source of life. 
for them, and they get further assurance by the fruit that they bear as they abide more and more in Christ. But they are warned as they abound more and more in their Christ-likeness that the world will only hate them more. And we talked about that before as well. We, we see this mentioned in John three nineteen. Why will the world hate us? Uh, as we abide in Christ and, and shine the light of Christ into the world, well, John 3.19 says this, The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Now, this leads us back to chapter 16. And in verses 1 through 4, if you look at those verses, Jesus, this is me paraphrasing, Jesus tells them of all the things that would happen when, um, or he tells them all the things that would happen and for them to not be caught off guard by the severity of the persecution, the hatred, the pain, the suffering, all the things that they would endure. Some of them will be killed. We see this in Acts with the stoning of Stephen. And this is done at the hands of the Jews who thought they were offering this service unto God. But he ends the chapter with these beautiful words in verses 32 and 33, which we're going to cover next week. He says this, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered each to his own home and you will leave me alone, yet I am not alone for the father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulations, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So that's kind of chapters 13 through 16 in a nutshell. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to kind of round out our time in chapter 16. But as we do this for this week and next week, something that I, I like to to remind myself of when I'm reading what's going on as this was written at a specific time to a specific people and has eternal implications. And so we have to kind of put ourselves in the mind of those who were uh, living this out as it was going on. And so I think that's important for us to do that, to, to read and think through this passage as if we were the disciples. They don't have the benefit of hindsight like we do. We know the, the end of this story, right? Christ's going to come back. He's going he's to make all things new. He's, he's bringing salvation. But at this point, they don't, they don't know any of that stuff. What they know is that this Messiah King has come, that he's performed these miracles. And in their eyes, he's going to uh, overthrow the Roman rule. He's going to take back over the promised land. And, and the Jews are going to rule and reign with Christ. And it's going to be all hunky-dory from that point on. That, that's what's in the minds of the disciples at this time. It's that, that feeling that you know that you know that you know, right? Like whenever something is just all the signs are pointing to this. And I think we all have that feeling about different things through our lives where it's just, I know this is going to happen. I just feel it. It's, it's, it's in my bones. And, and that promise that, that God made in the scriptures in the Old Testament that Christ is fulfilling in this time, all of these things will come true. But not necessarily the way that the disciples thought they would come true. They would actually be coming true, being fulfilled in God's timing, for God's glory, and ultimately in the, God that, in, in the way that God sees fit. So the, the question that I kind of wanted to ask to kind of wrap our minds around this is how often does God's ways align with our ways? Like whenever we think about the way things go in our lives and the plans that we make, how often do our plans perfectly align with God's plans? Well, I think a more pointed question that we can ask ourselves is how does God usually get through to us and show himself most glorious? Like how, what are the times in which we rely on him most and know that he is the only way and the only answer that we have for anything in life? Is it through health, wealth, and prosperity that he usually shows himself in this way? 
Is it by us always getting promotions, always getting the jobs that we're trying to find and uh, the new car and, and all, the, all these nice things? Is it being the head and not the tail as we hear sometimes? Is it conquering our giants? Is that when we see God most glorious in our lives and, and need him the most? Now, I'm not saying that he cannot do those things because he, he absolutely does show himself glorious in those times. But I believe if we're being honest with ourselves, it's usually on the other end of the spectrum. It's through pain and suffering that we see God most glorious. We see this all over scripture, all the time. Joseph, right? He's sold into slavery, taken from everything he's ever known, taken to a land that he knows nothing of, speaks a different language, and, and he spends 25 years of time away from anyone that he's ever known. His entire family is taken from him. 25 years he spends in captivity. And then it isn't until the end, towards the end of his life, that he sees why this purpose was for him. But his life, 25 years of his life, was in captivity and slavery. We see this in Moses' life. 40 years, right? We see these miracles that God performed through him, the plagues, parting of the Red Sea. But then there are 40 years in the wilderness with these Israelites who just grumble and complain and grumble and complain about everything that they have, everything that's provided for them. And he's interceding for them, praying that God not wipe them out over the course of these 40 years, over and over and over again. I'm not even 40 years old yet, and I can't imagine that long having to deal with millions of people that can only complain about the things that God has provided for them. But that's, that was Moses' life. Ultimately, we see this find its true fulfillment in the life and death of Christ. Now, something that I think is easily overlooked for us as people is the fact that it was through death that Christ conquered death. Right? It was through death. He could have done it any way that he saw fit, but it was through death that he conquered death. Now, if I was to summarize our sermon for today, something that I want you to go away with and think through and, and ponder and chew on as you think back on this passage, it would be this. Pain, and this is a alliteration. I like using alliterations. Maybe it's the Baptist in me. But pain is promised. It has purpose and it leads to prayer or it should lead us to prayer. Pain is promised. It has purpose and it leads us to prayer. Now, we'll see this as we walk through this passage today in verses 16 through 19. We're going to talk about the promise of pain in 20 and 21. We're going to talk about the purpose of it. And then in verses 22 through 24, we will see our need for prayer and the command given to us for prayer in, in spite of or in light of the pain. So let's go ahead and look at verses 16 through 19 and talk about this promise of pain. Now, if you were to go back and read these verses, there's nothing, he doesn't say anything specifically about pain, right? There's, you won't find the word pain in these verses. So why do I say pain? Well, Jesus is talking about being gone for a little while, and it confuses, confuses the disciples. And as far as what he's talking about specifically, Jesus doesn't answer that question when he responds to him in this passage. But a lot of commentators are split on that time frame that he's actually referring to being a little while. Is it between his death and his resurrection or is it between his ascension and his second coming? There's there's debate on which one he's talking about, because if a day is a, a, a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years to the day, you know, time frame, the time frame is is a relative. And so there there's the people are split on what they're talking about. 
I can see both being applicable here, so we'll just go with that. But uh, that's, that's kind of the thing. And so either way, regardless of where we fall on our understanding of this passage, the sheep will be scattered as the shepherd leaves them, right? That, that's, that's pain in and of itself. If there's anybody you've ever relied on, your parents, your teachers, your boss or whatever, when they're gone, I know people say when the cat's away, the mice will play. But if it's somebody you rely on to help you get through things, when they're gone from you, life is not quite the same. This brings about heartache, pain, tribulation, pain, suffering. All of these things are brought about. And we can see that in that time for that little while, we can call it between the death and resurrection in the disciples or after the ascension of, of Christ, when the ministry of the Holy Spirit began in the book of Acts. Either way, there was sorrow and pain in store for the believers. And this is mentioned in verse uh, 20. Now, one thing that as I was doing my study through this week, I found interesting was the fact that there's really not much information given to us after the burial of Christ uh, of the, the life of the disciples, what they did, how they mourned and what they thought and felt like. There's not a lot of information given to us. And I, I do believe it's because they just more than likely just moped around. The worlds were crushed. There was nothing beneficial for us to know in that time. It was just sulking and just terrible feelings. Uh, like I said, their worlds were crushed. And if we think about things that we've placed our hope in, whether it be a job, a relationship, a, a career choice or something, and, and we just, we're, we're just super excited about this thing, thinking that God is blessing it along the way because this is what he has for us. And then it's taken from us it's crushing. That'll crush you. And that's, that's similar to what's going on with the disciples in this time. They've, they've had Christ with them, the one, their Savior, their God, the person that they have forsaken all things for. They've seen miracles performed. They've had intimate conversations with them. Everything about who Christ is, is perfect, is right, is true, and, and their, their hope is in him. And then he dies. I mean, dies. He's dead. Right. I mean, in that moment, he is he's dead. They, they breathe his last breath. They pulled him off from the cross. Then they wrapped him up and buried him. There was it appeared to be there was no coming back from that. That's that's where they were. But Jesus, you know, he, he spoke to them about these things over the course of his ministry. He reminded them over and over again that his time was coming, that he was going to lay down his life for his sheep, but that he would raise it up again, but he would have to lay down his life to set these captives free. His words were clear. Maybe they just didn't want to believe that part. Maybe they didn't want to believe that Christ had to die. I mean, none of us want to believe that pain is in store for us. Right. I mean, that's that's not just me. Right. Everybody wants to be a Christian until we got to be a Christian. You know, we tend to say things like, well, you know, like oh, God bless that brother for the, all the things that he's going through. Like God is strengthening him and getting him through that. I'm just glad it ain't me. Right. That, that's the way we think. It ain't right. But that's that's the way we think that that pain, that suffering. That's for other Christians. I, you know, God doesn't have that for me. I'm just here. I don't do much. And this I just stay in my lane and live this life. And, and I'm OK. But listen to what Jesus says to the disciples in this passage about the life that they're called to live. In Matthew 26, 31, this is a parallel passage of this upper room discourse. 
just thinking in light of the way that we think about pain, that it's for other people, or if, it is, if I am experiencing pain, well, it's because there's sin in my life. I need to repent of this sin so the pain will go away. Once I, once I find this sin that I'm, that I'm committing and I stop committing, well, the pain's going to go away, right? We, we either find ourselves in one side or the other. Either I don't deserve it or I, I deserve it, so I need to do this thing to get rid of it. But listen to what Matthew says or excuse me, Jesus says in Matthew 26, 31, when concerning the disciples in this time, he says, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now, if we look at this verse and what's going on and what's been going on for these disciples, there's, it's not sinful behavior on behalf of the disciples that is causing the shepherd to be struck and for them to experience this pain and, and, and uh, hopelessness that they're going through. No, what, what's going on is God's purpose must be fulfilled through the pain and suffering of his servant, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And through that pain, the disciples endure as well. They have to experience the pain right along with them. Now, I say all that, and what I mentioned earlier about the sin, I don't say that to say don't ever search your heart for sinful activities because, yes, if we're committing sin, we must search our heart, examine ourselves, see if we're in the faith. We must do all those things. And there are consequences to our sins. If we are committing sin in the dark, it will be brought to light. You best believe that. So that's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about day to day things when things are out of our control. But pain and suffering, these trials that we experience, these are inevitable for all of us. In fact, it's promised to us. In this world, you will have troubles. It's promised. But by God's grace, we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So there is purpose in pain. Absolutely. Yeah, we can absolutely see that. Um, or I'm sorry, there is purpose. There's a promise of pain and there's a purpose for pain. And so we're going to see that in verses 20 and 21. So let's look at those verses. So in verse 20, he starts off by saying, truly, truly. Right. This is a phrase that's used throughout the scriptures, whether it be verily, verily or most assuredly. There's different ways that this is translated. But ultimately what Jesus is doing at this time, he's trying to bring attention by way of uh, exclamation. Right. This is not him saying this is more important than anything else I've ever said or that it carries more weight than anything he's ever said. But he's just trying to drive a point home. Right. He's he's already said and he's driving this point home. So this promised pain has purpose. He says, you will weep. This is a this isn't the Jesus wept word that's used in the Greek. This is a different word. It's like a a sobbing cry, like when you hear terrible news for the first time and it just rocks you to the core. That's the kind of weeping he's talking about. And lament this lamenting is a mourning of of law or mourning the loss of someone. It's just this this deep despair. And you're doing these things as the world rejoices. They will take much joy in your tragedies, is what he's saying. Now, I wanted to give us an example, and I think it's an example that fits for today in the world we live in. And this isn't a, uh, I'm not trying to make a stake a claim in my political allegiance because I have none outside of Christ. He's the one who's king. But 
All of us are aware, or I would assume, at least 99% of us, that uh, President Trump contracted the coronavirus, right? I mean, I think all of us know that. But as he contracted and the news went out that he had the coronavirus, his enemies, I'm not going to say just Democrats in general, I'm saying just his enemies rejoiced in the fact that he had contracted the virus. I mean, they were tweeting and saying all this stuff like, oh, I thought it was a hoax or whatever they were saying, but they were just joyful in the fact that he had contracted this virus. Now, for the Christian, right, we are not allowed to have that kind of joy over evil. Sickness is evil. It's not, there's nothing good about the sickness. God brings good out of it, but there's nothing good about the sickness. And scripture is clear about that for us. In 1 Corinthians 13, 6, it tells us love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. Right. So, yeah, we don't take joy in the in the shortcomings or the tragedies of someone else. Um, that, that's not what's in store for us, but that's what the world will do. The world will act in that fashion. They will rejoice as you weep and lament. Now, if we think about with with Christ and I kind of mentioned this earlier, but when Christ died, you know, he screamed out, it is finished. Right. And, and we was nailed to the cross and he died. He breathed his last breath. He he gave his spirit unto the Lord and, and he died. This was the darkest moment for the disciples. This was as dark as it got for them. They saw his side pierced, right? They pierced with the, him with the spear through the lung to the heart, uh, puncturing those, um, those organs. And he bled out fluids that were like water and, and blood. And they took him down, buried him. This was a, a very, very dark time for them. And then these men who, who followed Christ, who gave everything for him, once he's buried, well, they got to go back to their everyday life. They had forsaken everything, given up their fishing trade, their tax paying trade, whatever they did. They had, you know, they were following him. People probably mocked him for doing what they did. And, and but they were with him and he was he was true. Everything they did was gung ho. They were just 100 miles an hour, uh, full steam ahead. But then Christ died and they got to go back to that life. They got to go back to where they came from. So these people are mocked, potentially. I mean, we don't know, but I mean, this is, these are the things that happen, right? If, if Jesus is telling them they're going to rejoice when you weep and lament, we can only imagine that that's what's happening this time. If they're not openly rejoicing, they're doing it behind their back. But as Jesus said in this passage, their sorrow will turn to joy. As a woman giving birth has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she delivers the baby, she remembers the anguish no more because the purpose was fulfilled. And now she has this bundle of joy that made it all worth it. Right? That's essentially what he's telling them. And they're going to experience that joy, too, after a little while. There is purpose for their sorrow. Now, you may not know this about me, but uh, I've never birthed a child. Surprise, surprise, right? I don't know if you can tell by my figure, uh, but I've never given birth to a child. But I did stay at a Holiday Express last night. I'm just kidding. I did a little research, right? I, you know, as I was doing my, my study, I was researching not childbirth, but the chemical stuff that goes on during that process. And so uh, I've got some mamas in here that, that like know. And so if I'm wrong, hey, just correct me. But I, I think I got this right. So oxytocin is the uh, chemical that's released that brings about the contraction pains. Look, I've seen some heads nod, right? So I'm good so far. 
That was okay, so that's what's released to bring about the contraction pains and, and starts this birthing process. So that, that this pain is brought about by this chemical, right? And the body making way for the, the birth to happen. Well, this brings about pain and anguish for the mother, right? Especially if she doesn't have uh, an epidural or any of the modern medicine things that, bring up, that do this kind of thing. It makes it a lot harder to do this. And so that, that's what starts. But then once the baby's born, the body once again floods uh, the, the, the bloodstream with this oxytocin with even more. And so what this does, it, it brings about this like euphoric feeling. Uh, it heightens the senses and it's known as like the, the love drug, right, in the body. And so this, there's this, what's known or what I saw is known as the golden hour right after birth where like they, they hold the baby close to them, skin to skin contact. And there's this, uh, not magical, but this super emotional, wonderful uh, experience that takes all that pain away in a sense, right? That it made it all worth it, right? You're going through all these things, whether it's hours of labor or many, many hours, but there's this, this same chemical is bringing about two uh, results. And then it, but at the end, it, it makes it all worth it. And it's like, how beautiful and wonderful is God for bringing about this the, in the way that he does? And then using this as an illustration in his word to, to remind us of how good he is. I, I think it's amazing. I, I find this uh, a, a wonderful thing that God uses these things, these, this pain that women go through to bring about some of the greatest joy in their life. Now, in the same way, our sorrow is brought about by God. It, it produces wonderful effects within the Christian life as well. And if you don't believe me by just saying it, listen to God's word. Romans 5, 3 through 5 uh, says this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given us, given to us. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Right. This is an irrevocable promise from the Lord about the purpose of our pain and suffering. I, yeah, I, I want it's it's awesome. I think this is great. And so this is mentioned here from the Apostle Paul. But then we also hear it from James as well in chapter one when he says, count it all joy, all joy, everything. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The psalmist in Psalm 126 verse 5 says it this way. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Now there's nothing fun or appealing or enjoyable, uh, if I can use that word about pain, trials, suffering, persecution, heartache or tragedy. There's nothing that we can look forward to about the pain itself, uh, nothing at all. But it is necessary and beneficial for all of us. They are promised, they have purpose, and in knowing this, Jesus follows this by telling us our need for prayer. So let's look at verses 22 through 24. Now, something that I feel like when these kind of verses come up, I have to address 
every time, but these verses here are not a license for us to just ask for whatever we want of God. All right, that's not what he's saying in this time. I think that's very evident from the context that we find ourselves in. This, this isn't a, hey, you just ask God for anything and he's going to give it to you. He's not going to give you a Lamborghini, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the body that you've always wanted. Or, you know, he may not even take away the, the, neck, the crick in your neck, you know, when you wake up. Uh, it's not, those aren't the things that he's talking about. He's not a genie in a bottle. Uh, but we tend to treat him that way sometimes. But God knows us. He knows how we think and act. And I believe it's very intentional that he lays out these principles in the way that he did. If you think about it, what's the natural reaction for if you've known anybody, which I don't know if I know anybody personally, but if you've ever known anybody that's had a near death experience where they like their life flashed before their eyes and they're on the brink of death and they came back. And, you know, usually those kind of people um, they, they kind of reassess what they've been doing with their life. Like, man, I need to stop doing this. I need to focus on my family. I need to, you know, they may create a bucket list of things they want to do before they die, but there's usually something in them where it's like, okay, I've done a lot of stupid things in my life and I need to, those distractions, I need those gone. I want to do something better with my life. Now that's, I believe this is true for the Christian as well as the, the unbeliever, I think we both kind of will reassess things in our lives when we get to those moments. Um, but I, I do think that's something that, that is true of all of us to a, to a certain extent. Now, as Christians, I think these hardships, what they do, they bring about clearer vision uh, for us and they, they cause us to see God's glory in a greater light, which gets our attention off of ourselves, right? Because we tend to be the center of our universe and focus back on what we are actually called to do, will work for the kingdom of God. It gets us kingdom focused, right? As uh, Jesus prayed in Matthew 6, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, or on earth as it is in heaven. Now, how do we do that? Well, we do that through prayer, and we see that in this passage. And this is technically our third point, but it's also how I want to try to end our time today with our application. Um, but if you want, if you're the type, as we've gone through this passage so far, if you're the person that wants to understand why you're going through the pain and suffering that you're going through, why all these things never seem to work out right, or, or woe is me, or what, however you, you, you fall in, if you fall into a category like that where you're just questioning the things that you're going through in life, right? If that's where you find yourselves today for, for whatever reason, spend some time in prayer. Spend some time in prayer. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek him in prayer. Seek him in his word and seek him in his people. All right, I will ring that from the rooftops until my dying day. That's that's and that's the method, right? You seek him first in prayer, then seek him in his word and then seek him in his people. That is, there is, yeah, that's as, that's as simple as it gets. Um, prayer is crucial. It is necessary, and you will not, I repeat, I repeat, will not survive without it. It's like the breath into our lungs. That, that's how important prayer is to the life of the believer. Thomas Watson, who is my uh, go-to Puritan, said it this way. I, I really like this quote. He says, God will fill the hungry because he himself has stirred up the hunger. 
As in the case of prayer, when God prepares the heart to pray, he prepares his ear to hear. Let me say that again. God will fill the hungry because he himself has stirred up the hunger. As in the case of prayer, when God prepares the heart to pray, he prepares his ear to hear. Now, even better, we see what Jesus said in this passage. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you. All right, what does it mean when Jesus says in my name? He's not saying just saying in Jesus name to make it uh, happen for you. If you're saying it, the, the in his name carried that title, like for the, the Jewish people, it was like I'm coming in the name of the Lord, like I represent him. So th- therefore, this prayer is representing a prayer that I'm offering up as if as if I was Jesus offering the prayer. Right. Not that I am, but as if I'm offering this prayer, as if I'm Jesus. So that's what this means. Offer this prayer in my name. Know who I am through my word and offer your prayers. Whatever you ask, it will, it, whatever you ask the father, it'll be done for you. Pain is promised, it has purpose, and it will lead us to prayer. Because all of us will bow our knee. Whether we're believers today, one, one day, every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Pain is promised, it has purpose, and it leads us to prayer. Now, as these trials come and go, there is one constant through them all. And if you are needing comfort, strength, peace, and hope, as Jesus Christ has already promised, ask and you will receive so that your joy may be full. Let us pray. Dear Holy Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, I'm just thankful for that, that me as a broken individual, a crooked stick, you write the straightest of lines. I am so thankful for that, Lord. I thank you for using the foolishness of men to shame the wise, to bring about your glory and your fame is a a beautiful thing. We just pray, Lord, that as a church, as all those who are in attendance today, that, that we seek you while you may be found, that we understand that it is you and you alone who we will answer to, We will either be clothed with Christ's righteousness or we'll be clothed with our own filthiness. God, I pray for all of us here and all those watching that they will call upon your name. Your word tells us a bruise we read you will not break. If we come to you humbly asking for mercy, you will grant it to us. God, we all have things that we're dealing with today that we struggle with. We just pray, Lord, that you give us the insight to see these things for what they are. They are opportunities for us to rely on you more and more. For us to see you more gloriously. No matter what it is we go through, it it doesn't matter. God, you are using all things together for our good to conform us into the image of your son. If it takes me being embarrassed or shocked or whatever. You know what's best, and we we trust you with that. Lord, we pray that you allow us to seek you in your word, 
Seek you first in prayer and your word and also in your people. Allow us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. May that be evident in our people today. God, we pray and we just give you thanks for all these things, for hearing our prayers, for preparing these prayers for us to offer up to you and you preparing your ear to hear them. We know that you will answer them perfectly and we just rejoice in that. So it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.